0: Bye. and gentlemen welcome back to the Dr. Radionic Podcast. So thank you for holding out for me for a little while here as we've been pretty busy here at Lab 5. Uh, We've run multiple experiments on our new design and come to find out that the design is not even necessary. In fact we've got all the technology we need right here to do the broadcast really without even having a radionic box at all. And also interestingly enough we've uncovered that there's no need to analyze anything with any set of dials because we do in fact have a method of counting bions under the microscope which would give us the exact same readout as the rates on the dials so no stick plate no dials and no witness plate is needed either just encoding the signal broadcasting the signal from the device and basically, if we're doing an analysis, then just very simple process of counting them under a microscope. So that was great. I mean, it's fantastic. It's another leap forward, making things simpler for people, making it more affordable for everybody rather than buying a bunch of overpriced boxes and paying to play around with dials and so on and so forth. It's just a matter of encoding everything and then broadcasting it out there into the FM waves. So I'd like to thank everybody for sticking around and especially like to welcome Golden Ball Healing onto our YouTube channel. Uh, That's our extension here that we like to play around with to give you a visual on things once in a while. And today I thought we'd do something a little bit different for the next little while. And we're going to be talking and delving into the book Psychology and Alchemy by Carl Jung. Now, this is a pretty big change for this channel, because as you could probably read from the description, it's not something that we would normally do. But I like to keep things kind of open, and I like to talk about different things, as I'm sure you all like to hear about different things as well. So without further ado, let's jump into it. All right, so I feel like it's, uh, you know, sort of cordial here to state at this point that if anybody has religious views, we're not here to change your views. We're just here to get you thinking. So if you do have any comments, please, you know, feel free to leave a voice message on our anchor page, or you can even uh, send an email, we'll include an email address down there and we can get a dialogue going, but you know, we don't, we don't want any hate mail, but if that's how you feel, that's how you feel. So we're going to jump right into it. So we're not bound by the subjective restraints of religion as it's interpreted by others. Rather, it's not a matter of imitating the beliefs of an external central hero, or imitatio Christi, as Carl Jung put it. It is a journey of revealing and discovering the essence of your own Christ-like essence from within. Lao Tzu once said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. While perhaps a simple observation might say this to be a rather obvious statement of facts, there's far more to such a simple statement than meets the eye. While that single step puts manifold cosmetic elements into play it does suggest that the path to ascension lies wrapped carefully within the confines of the intent to make the journey however should we choose to encompass the fullness of this expression we should also note that the journey itself is also the destination the cultivation of your own fully self-actualized self is not an impossibility as many would think when viewed under these auspices it would appear that the cathartic nature of this line of reasoning acts as an unconscious key of sorts, which opens the doors to the pavilions of the inner worlds. While the seed of this growth may look the same, the product of that living process is radically different from person to person. Some naturally would gravitate towards literalism, and yet others, through the powerful imagination, would conceive devices of their own. What makes this particularly interesting is that both persons have experienced the same phenomenon. To the lay person, a Christian is someone who believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in a general sense, this is accurate. In a larger sense, the individual possesses a plethora of collections of personal cosmology gathered and assembled from traditions, personal values, and of course through the archetypes which exist at the moment of birth as yet untouched by any outside influence. Each person's relationship to the divine is as unique as the person themselves. The intelligence of the heart exists in the same capacity from person to person, but its weight, as it were, exists in different quanta and quality as per the experiences of that individual. Psychologically and physiologically speaking, we're all made from the same materials. It is, however, the arrangement and subsequent moving of those materials through life's experiences that form these unique psychic mosaics of the mind. Much as Carl Rogers was a proponent of patient-centered care, there were contingencies that form the dynamics of this paradigm of understanding. One such proponent is unconditional positive regard. In object-centered religious beliefs such as Christianity and Catholicism, this condition is turned toward the external and away from the internal source of godliness. Thus, the light may be seen to shine away from the individual and in this sense cast one's own identity of soul, with the larger cosmology, into darkness. Whilst in this preternatural state, the individual is reminded of their guilt, original sin, made to feel shame for their natural impulses, the sin itself, and told that there is but one way towards salvation, repentance. It is not not advisable to forget the importance of feeling guilty over wrongdoing, much as it is imperative to teach a child that the stove is hot. Though it is well known that we may tell children the burner is on and warn them of the danger, the child will inevitably devise some means to test the veracity of their parents' caution. Some will work through the mental processes and calculate that the risk of such an experiment is too great to make the attempt, and so will believe that they have been told. Others, on the other hand, will decide that physical action is needed and thus will put their hand near the element to detect heat, and others, sadly still, will put their hand on the burner and cause themselves harm. In any scenario, the child will feel guilt knowing that they've been warned out of compassion rather than the removal of some tangible reward. In this case, the reward is the exploration of the stove. Guilt can certainly have a value in teaching us the mechanisms by which we form our sense of morality. The sin-repentance scale combined with the Ten Commandments or the Golden Rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is in itself a parental method of teaching these wayward children a specific set of rules, while using the punishment of eternal damnation as a means of reinforcing the shame and the guilt of one's carnal nature. Human beings, by design, were meant to pursue pleasure and to avoid pain. It is quite natural, as it is part of self-preservation. It's well known that the soul is the instrument by which the body, the mind, and the spirit contrive the means to communicate with the divine. The soul represents hope, that there is something more than nothingness when one transcends the mortal coil. It is the fear of death itself that brings us closer to religion or spirituality. We're looking for answers to the question of life and of death. Thus, it should come as no surprise that the soul is used as a proverbial bargaining chip to the afterlife, and that this fear is what is typified, exemplified, and finally accentuated by the religious, in order that our carnal examinations fall in line with the preferred modality of thinking. Religion is about reinforcing a need for belonging by using conformity. Religion is the limitation of spirituality confined within its own narrow scope of rules. Rules, which we will emphasize, are patterned after only certain individuals, cultures, traditions, and even periods of time. It is our need to understand life, death, and beyond, combined with our Maslowian need to belong, that drives us to religion, and that drives us to justify to ourselves that this is the right way. It's the only way, because of such-and-such, and 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 so-and-so said such-and-such. It is easier and far more simple to convince yourself that someone else's truth is your own, rather than face the hard road that lies deep in your own subconscious. Instead of recognizing your guilt as a response to something you did to violate some society or personal condition, and growing through your own process of resilience, you learn to blame the devil and supplicate to God. Religion is but the interpreted dance of contemplation as the marionette dances for the puppeteer. As a means of conveying deeper concepts of morality through parables, religion in the Western sense gives us much to think about. These ideals are well contained within the gesticulations and pretty movements of the orchestration, but the genuine artifice is yet lacking in actualable substance, primarily because the process is nearly entirely externalized. In order that self-actualization occurs in its true form, the revelation must always then by necessity be originated from within that person. An external motivation, though, may of course play a role in this development. But it's crucial that the impetus of this ambition, that is the spiritual fuel for the journey, come from within. Even then, this melodrama is not completely without its merits and its scant representations. Instead, the easy path, as it were, is a carefully orchestrated act of unfolding one's inner macrocosm, but in a way that does not touch the inner realm of the shadow. It is a means by which pleasure is maximized and pain is kept at bay, and responsibility is avoided. It is the avoidance of the shadow that prolongs the fear of exploring its depths. The methods of externality are but the scrapings of gnosis. They give us ponderings in the form of psalms and proverbs, but if we do not practice these lessons they are but hollow reflections of a truth just beyond reach. They exist to convince us of a truth that we did not find within ourselves, and so we may relate them in a deeper way, but in no way do they relate to us deeply. We must not think that this exploration bears no fruit, but it is a brief glimpse up through the branches on the tree upon which the fruit grows. These changes do not highlight the awkward, uncomfortable qualities of our being that we prefer to ignore as opposed to self-examination, and subsequently accept and integrate. Our human qualities, foibles, values, faults, desires, morals... Those things that make us, make us who we are are not somehow sublimated for a superficial vision of our best selves, because we took the shortcut. They are not fully potentized to the extent that they could have been had we taken the time and put in the effort. Working with the darker aspects of ourselves allows us to cut the very strings of the puppeteer and free the individual from the constraints of valuing something outside of ourselves and learning to value ourselves. To be religious is different than being religious. We must delve into ourselves and uncover those deep attachments we experience during a psalm, a sermon, or through interaction with our fellows during the congregational processions of church. That moment of complete connectedness should be the goal of spirituality, or what's the point? Even within the structure of a surface-level gnosis, there's some merit. We gain the ability to feel even ever so slightly, and ever so little, the feeling of being free from doctrine, free from the restraints of the staring gaze of others. Yet, if we stop there, and then, those brief moments will be as a blind man who can only see bright light at scant moments, then as quickly as the vision came, it fades away to blackness. There is no experience as great as there is in the value of holistic ascension. When Gnosis is only experienced intermittently, the lack of genuineness of the experience does take away from the connection to the process. It does, however, allow us to see a world beyond that of our own two eyes. Our experience in godliness is not based on doctrine, but on our own personal connection to the divine itself. The words of a book or a human being or of God himself mean nothing unless the soul itself is prepared to accept the message. This connection is best expressed through the gnosis acquired upon the journey itself. The human mind requires it in order that the fullness of the experience can be processed sufficiently. There is no such thing as an instant cathartic fix in terms of psychology. One cannot simply get better or become enlightened without having done some work in the shadows first. In the Eastern philosophies, the worldview of the ego is projected through a dreamlike state, as Jung put it. Where the individual lives in such a grounded state that to the average Westerner, it's just simply a way of life beyond our wildest comprehension. The experience of God is not outside or beyond our reach, but is in fact made tangible through the practice of meditation. Cultivation of the self grows the soul and thus frees us from the confines of reality full of connections to the ego mindset. On the other hand, in Western culture, it seems preferable to idealize particular objects within the spiritual scope When it comes down to our spiritual identity, idolatry becomes the focal point of our spiritual focus. We worship the cross upon which Jesus died. We pray to and revere saints. We stand inside the sacred circle before the altar. What if there was no cross? What if we meditated and learned to listen to the macrocosm? What if we removed the circle and the altar from the equation? It would only just be you. Isn't that enough? This can be easily evidenced in everyday conversation as we convey our beliefs to others. I am a Christian. I am a Buddhist. I am a Wiccan. We inherently identify our spiritual beliefs within their object, these being Christ, the Buddha, and the more discerning as a Wiccan we would ask the question, Oh, are you a gardenerian witch? By distancing ourselves from the content of our religious or spiritual beliefs, we're also projecting responsibility for them onto an external source. Our sins are forgiven by Christ who died for our sins. The object absorbs the negative consequences for our human actions. The divine then becomes a sort of scapegoat for our misguided actions to some, to others a liberating God of generosity unimaginable, an example of selflessness and perhaps to others something different altogether. As the Buddhist, the denial of the self appears to lead away from acceptance but in fact closer to the reclamation of self by accepting one's true nature without the deprecations of egotistical connotations. Yet, if we're able to discard all of our worldly possessions in search of nirvana, what, we, what would we really have truly lost? I mean, lastly, the wicked externalize their responsibility upon the external force of karma, or the threefold rule. That's to say that the prime rule is harm none. For there is no need to harm you, the universe will repay the debt threefold. So regardless of how many examples it could be stated, many is the villain who have escaped the bondage of justice. Many are criminals who have lived long years on the run. The witch also learns to expel emotions through the means of magic and the casting of spells. Once again, rather than processing and assimilating the wisdom of the process of dealing with our emotions in a Gnostic way, we're told to put our energy into healing through metaphysical means. Not only are we putting our energy into a spell, but we're expecting the universe to do the footwork for us. Projecting the consequences of negative emotion through divine means in order to control nature towards some outcome is a fairly narcissistic concept. Since magic is beyond the regular capabilities of science, then wouldn't it make more sense to use magic to transform your emotions into something more productive from within? Since we do know that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, why ask the universe to project your magic into the ether? Just do it yourself. In alchemy, the work itself is the vehicle of transformation of the cell. The process is not only the means of transformation, it is the transformation as well. Alchemy beyond the laboratory work is for the transcendence of the soul beyond the need for material instruments. The operations performed are not only for practical purposes, but much like the soul, they act as the individual's conduit to the divine, if you will. With respect to identifiers, one would generally say, I am an alchemist, wherein the object is the practitioner themselves, combined in such a way, so as to make the alchemist just as much a part of the process as alchemy itself. Though an alchemist may in some way be religiously or spiritually affiliated, the term bears such archetypical and stereotypical derivatives, so as to complete the picture within the perceiver's mind without any further need to expand on the practitioner's particular interests in alchemy. Most would picture a hermit in a laboratory setting standing over flasks and beakers, perhaps in front of a medieval fireplace with a hot cauldron of some noxious fumes burning. On the other hand, some would understand the alchemist as another seeker of personal truth in so much that their truth is reflected by their perfection of the art. The Western motif of externalizing spirituality into the Rem Divinum reduces the capacity for self-actualization by externalizing the spiritual force itself. Even practices such as alchemy have been guilty of this from time to time. Some have become so enamored within the work that they would scarcely realize their analogies and allegories were discussing the processes, but with so much sacred knowledge lost between the lines. When we're incapable of accepting responsibility for our own actions, we're prone to blaming others, much as we place our sins upon Christ. We are told that we are imperfect beings and we should pray on hands and knees to beg for forgiveness of our sins. Thus, we are introduced to shame and groveling in order that we might receive vindication from our wickedness. To externalize responsibility is to not take responsibility for one's actions. It's no small wonder our first reaction when caught doing something illegal or moral is to blame someone or something else. It is in this sense that Western thought fosters an attitude of continual shame and denial cycles, which perpetuate the blaming of external sources for our own inaction or misdeeds, The devil made me do it, God's voice told me to, and so on and so forth. Whatever gets us off the hook. In Eastern mysticism, particularly with respect to Vedic philosophies, all things are ordered from their highest to lowest, transcendentally speaking, so that the self is placed as the most important but also of the least importance. To be selfish is to accept the illusion of maya, the illusion of self while the acceptance of the true self with the rejection of the ego self and attachments to both physical and spiritual restraints is samadhi. Samadhi means to bring together, much as Jung talks about the unification and integration of the shadow into one's core personality. Alchemy shares a similar viewpoint, wherein we depict this as the Ouroboros serpent swallowing its own tail. Though this symbol will most assuredly have multiple meanings, this is the true beauty of the transcendental archetype. The Ouroboros is tied with the perennial philosophy as it is a symbol which can bear many meanings. In the beginning, both the alchemist and the work will appear to be on separate planes, much as we might interpret the tail being on one end and the head of the serpent being on the other. It is through introspective meditation, prayer, and the practice of the great work that the alchemist realizes samadhi, or the fulfillment of self-actualization, by letting go of the ego and its attachment to the ego construct. The serpent, the head, and the tail dissolve together and become one and the same as the alchemist outgrows the need for reliance on material objects to complete the work. And it disappears completely when the alchemist is alone and their true self sits in the center of the cosmos and of nothingness at the same time holding the Philosopher's Stone and holding absolutely nothing. I think the best example I have seen that depicts this concept would be from the movie As Above, So Below. When they discover that when they traverse through the gate of Adar, or symbolically through the Necronomicon, the gate between the upper world and the underworld, the material objects no longer have the same properties as they once did. In the film, they find the Philosopher's Stone and use it and discover that it doesn't actually work because they haven't actually completed the full circuit or the journey. They, in fact, discover that the true Philosopher's Stone comes from journeying through the underworld and back passing its test and emerging once more to the upper world as much transmuted beings or being the stone itself. This is no different when it comes to religion or spirituality. It really is all about the journey, not the destination. But if it was the journey, it would be the destination. That's it for now. Dr. Radionic signing off. (music) I'm